we see really the, the overarching purpose and calling of mankind. So we're going to read those first five verses so we can see it all in context. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Beloved congregation in Christ, this letter of 1 Peter is absolutely filled with crucial instruction for people who live in a broken and sinful world. How do you handle it when you're doing your best to bless those around you and in response they curse at you and lie about you? What should God's people do about a government that's bent on destroying them? Or how about if you're a slave or an employee who's paid like a slave and your master is doing his best to take advantage of you? Or what if your spouse is an unbeliever? What's your responsibility to that spouse? For that matter, how should we regard all the rest of the suffering of this life? How do we avoid despair? All of that the Apostle Peter addresses with conviction and compassion and wisdom. He provides counsel that God's people desperately need now and then. But he doesn't start there, does he? He doesn't dive right into those questions because he understands, as important as it is to understand how we should answer the unbelievers around us, as important as it is to know how we should act or speak or even think about the people around us, none of that is as important as knowing who we are as a people of God and what our calling is while we remain in this world. Last week, we focused on that identity aspect. How our identity is wrapped up in having been set apart by the triune God. Though scattered in the midst of an unbelieving world, being strengthened by divine mercy. That's who we are. But now, we need to... We need to perceive that as those whom God has set apart, as those whom God is preserving and strengthening and blessing, that we all have a calling that eclipses every other calling. We're going to see in the rest of this letter, it talks about all our situational callings, how we behave at work, how we behave in our family, how we behave in front of this kind of unbeliever or that how we face this kind of, of disappointment or that kind of challenge. Those are all situational. Those are all very specific to different parts of our lives. But there is one calling that overwhelmingly applies to every one of us individually and to all of us together. And that's what Peter focuses on in our text this evening. He wants us to see why we are here and how we can thrive 
in this place, despite all its brokenness, despite all its sin, despite all the rebellion around us, how we can thrive according to our calling in this place. And what we find, if we sum it up in one sentence, what we find is that we're here to worship. We're here to honor God and to bring Him glory, and He has provided perfectly in a way that enables us to do that. And therefore, God's ambassador here leads the church to praise God for His abounding grace. That's our theme. God's ambassador leads the church to praise God for His abounding grace. And that grace for which we praise God, for which we worship God, is a grace that infuses the present life we enjoy, which is the first thing that He shows us. At the start of our text in verse 3, He emphasizes the praiseworthiness, the worshipworthiness of God. The first word, blessed. That tells us that God is worthy of our worship. We are to worship God, not because that's something we choose to do, not because that will make us feel good about ourselves. Not, it's not about us, you see. We often hear that, don't we? When people talk about why they go to this church or why they don't go to that church or why they quit going to church or why they started going to church. It's because of how they feel, how it makes them feel. The, the warm, fuzzy feelings they get or the excitement that they're given or... You know, that's, that's what lays behind a lot of the seeker-sensitive kinds of worship. They use music and praise bands to try to influence your feelings, to try to make you feel excited, to make you feel prayerful, to make you feel meditative. That it's not really about us. The first word about this calling that we're given is about God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our worship. A wise theologian once said, all sound theology must begin and end with doxology, with worship. Because if we study God without worshiping God, if we study what God has done or what He calls us to do without focusing on the worship of God, we dishonor Him. Because we reduce God to some set of syllogisms or, or truth claims. If we would study God faithfully, if we would know God truly, we must begin and end with worship. After all, this God whom we study, when this God whom we study is our Father. We celebrate Father's Day today. Why? What's the big deal about fathers? Well, we look up to them. They protect us. They guard us. At their very best, they lead us and direct us and teach us and equip us to live in a way that is fulfilling and right and good. But they're all dim expressions, dim reflections of what He truly is. He is the Father who, according to Exodus 34, according to His own words, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet at the same time being the just one who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This God whom we worship, He is the Father. 
the perfect example of what a father is meant to be. Everything that you think of when you think of the best things of a father, that's him. And he has a son whom he has had from all eternity. So greatly does he love his children that he sent that son whom he loves with a love that is beyond our comprehension. He sent his son to deliver us from the punishment for sin that we deserve. Now, how can we know that? How can we consider that and not worship Him? How can we not openly praise and confess this God who paid such an astoundingly great price for our deliverance? After all, we are the ones whom He has caused to be born again. The Greek word behind that phrase is, frankly, strange. It's an unusual word that literally means to cause to be conceived anew. In other words, it's about something that happened in the past. It's a participle, so it defines the one to whom it refers. But it says to us, to Christians, we have been restarted. We are the people who are identified by, who are characterized by the fact that we have been restarted. It's passive. We didn't do it. We didn't choose it. We didn't ask for it. God took us. He chose us. And he re-began. We were a mess from the start. We so despised the God we were made to serve, we wouldn't even ask him for help. So he came to us. He chose us. He restarted us. And he transformed us from the inside out. He gave us a new heart so that we could see the absolute misery of our sin and so that we could desire something better. Then He enlightened our minds so we could understand His Word. And then He sent that Word along with the Holy Spirit's work of faith. And so we became new creatures, being joined to Christ who gives us life. It was an act, says Peter, of His great mercy. Mercy is kindness that is undeserved. You show mercy to someone, you're not paying off a debt. You're giving something that you don't have to give because you choose to. We were given life according to His great mercy. That tells us, again, we were passive in the work that brought us to God. He chose us, He called us, He transformed us, He gave us life. We were as passive in gaining our spiritual life as we were in gaining our physical life. And only God can do that. Now, if nothing else convinces you that God is worthy of our worship, this must You couldn't even recognize of yourself that you needed the gift of salvation that He gave you. And He paid every penny. He suffered every last bit of the punishment that we deserved, even while we still hated Him. How can we not worship a God who has been so abundantly merciful to us? And He did it all, says Peter, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was the means by which He gave us this new life. Jesus' resurrection, that implies the whole of what He did. His coming as one of us to live the perfect life that we failed to live. His suffering at the hand of men that He didn't deserve. Suffering because He reflected God in the way that they declined to reflect Him. His sacrifice on the cross 
Not for any sin that he committed. He committed no sin, but for the sins that we committed. His burial, taking the full weight of the sins that we had embraced. And then rising victorious over all of it. Demonstrating to all the world not only that death could not hold him, that death had been conquered, but also that every last bit of the price had been paid for our salvation. Colossians 3 says, We who have faith in Jesus were raised with Him. We were joined to His death to pay for our sin. Now we've been joined to His resurrection that in Him we might have new life. And therefore we possess a living hope. Now hope in this verse means something different than our world means. When unbelievers in our world talk about hope, they're talking about something of which they have no assurance. Boy, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. Boy, I hope I get that job. Boy, I hope that they have no assurance. They're just blindly desiring. But when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about something very different and infinitely better. Biblical hope is confidence resting in God. Confidence that God is able to give us what we need. Confidence that God is faithful to all of the promises that He has spoken. Hope, in a biblical sense, is trusting God to do what He has promised. And because of Jesus' resurrection, our hope is certain and undoubted. It's a living hope because Christ lives for our sake. It's a living hope because our hope is real. Folks, this is how He has blessed us. He gave us life, starting us anew when we still hated Him. The cost of giving us life was unthinkably high, but he paid every bit of it. And therefore, we have a hope that is absolutely certain and sure. The hope of new life, the hope of a a relationship with God, the hope of eternity in his presence. Now, how can we know that and yet decline to worship him? How ugly would that ingratitude be? How wicked the heart that would even conceive of it? thing is, Our hearts, if if we are in Christ, our hearts will increasingly desire to worship Him. To worship Him, to honor Him, to confess Him unto the praise of His name. So let us do that boldly, meditating daily on, on the gift that our Father gave us. That He was willing to do all of that in order to restore us. That is what should motivate our worship, and not that alone. We worship Him with our eyes looking backward at what He has done to restore us to Himself, but also with our eyes looking forward at what is to come. That's what we see in verse 4, the call to worship because of the hope that's still out there. And so our second point is the promised inheritance that we anticipate. Verse 4 points us to the result God ordains in giving us new life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, an inheritance. Normally, when we talk about an inheritance, we're talking about something we get when someone else dies. Grandpa dies, they read the will, and lo and behold, he left you his truck. Right? Aunt Helen dies... They, they look at her will, and it turns out that her inheritance to you was her good china. An inheritance 
is normally something we get when someone else dies. But this is an inheritance we get when we die. When Christians die, they go to be with the Lord and to receive the fullness of that which He has promised. Well, not the fullness initially, because initially we go to heaven. And that's an amazing gift. We get to leave behind all our sin, all our suffering, all our sorrow. But there's still more. Because when Jesus comes back, He makes all things new. He restores heaven and earth together. And we get to live in the creation, physical and spiritual, reunited, employing all our gifts, all our abilities to the full of what we were made to do, but couldn't because of sin. You see, an inheritance, this inheritance, that's something God's people have longed for throughout the history of God's people. After God called Abraham, He promised the land of Canaan as an inheritance. That was a rich blessing because Abraham was a sojourner. He didn't have a home. He followed his flocks and herds where, where they needed to graze, but he didn't have a place that he could call his own till his wife died and he purchased a field with a cave where he could bury her, and that's all that he owned. But he and his children looked forward to owning that land when God brought them into it and gave them all of it as their inheritance. When the people were in Egypt as slaves, they looked forward to when God would deliver them and bring them into that land of their inheritance. But throughout, Hebrews 11 tells us throughout, they recognized that wasn't the be-all and the end-all. That was just a symbol of their true inheritance. Because there was a greater inheritance to come that wasn't merely earthly, that wasn't merely part of this broken and fallen world. See, we have an inheritance just like they did. When Israel was wandering out in the wilderness, they recognized the land on which they stood, the places where they camped. They weren't really theirs, but they were going to a place that was theirs. They were going to a place that God would give them, and that's us. Well, we might own our homes, we might own a, a farm or a business, but that's temporary and we know it. The time's coming soon when we'll sell it all or we'll give it all away or we'll just die and it'll be taken from us. That's all momentary. But what we gain after, that's permanent, that's forever. And what is that, for which, that inheritance for which we wait? Like the land of Canaan, our inheritance has a physical dimension. God has promised, as I said, to restore and renew this physical world. Heaven and earth alike will be joined together and perfected and we will live there. And that inheritance will be filled with God's blessing. Jesus promised that He would give us the kingdom of God and that, in, that kingdom includes all the, the blessings of having a relationship with God. We'll live in the new heavens and the new earth having a relationship with the Lord where we can speak to Him, where we can talk with Him, where we can know and experience His love and His presence in ways that, that escape us while we're still in this fallen world. There are differences between our inheritance and the inheritance of Israel because theirs was just a shadow of what was to come. Theirs was purely earthly. Ours is earth and heaven restored. Theirs could be lost through sin as a penalty. Ours can never be lost. It's secured in Christ. Theirs was but for a time. They would die and leave it behind. But ours, there will be no death. There will be no destruction. There will be no end. We see those distinctions laid out in Peter's 
uh, descriptions of this inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable. It's a word that defines something that cannot be destroyed. Like I said, the land of Canaan, it could be destroyed, and it was. In the exile, the cities were wiped out. The fields were left to be overgrown. The trees were cut down. The people were driven out. But our inheritance can never perish, can never be destroyed, can never be demolished by the hand of men, and it is undefiled. That speaks of purity. In this world, everything is impure. The holiest, the most perfect person still has sin. The absolute best of our works, kids, you recognize this, right? The absolute best of our works is still stained with the imperfections and the sins that that we have. But not our inheritance. That which God gives us in the end is it's undefiled. There's no sin, there's no imperfection, there's no brokenness. That'll keep you up at night. Can you imagine? Can you imagine crops without any disease, without any predatory bugs? Amazing. Can't even imagine it. Imagine livestock without any disease, without any stubbornness. I don't think any stubbornness. Uh, Like I said, that'll keep you up at night undefiled. It'll be perfect in a way that we can't even fathom and unfading. In this world, everything fades. You go get that dream car of yours, young men. You decide you're going to do a frame-up restoration. You tear it down. You sandblast everything. You, you powder coat the frame. You get all the brand new parts. You make it look absolutely beautiful. And in five years, it's going to have a rough spot. Wait, we live in Michigan. Three years. It's going to fade. It's going to decay. Everything here returns to rust and dust and decay. But not that inheritance. It will always be brand new and shiny. It will always be utterly perfect. We can't even fathom that today. But that's what God has held out to us. That's what He's assured us we will know for all eternity. And today, it's kept in heaven for us. In other words, already now it has been completely earned. We're not hoping that someday God will get around to. No, Jesus earned it all, accomplished it all. We're just waiting for the unveiling. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant all of it is finished. The inheritance was completely earned, completely accomplished. We just have to wait until His perfect timing to unveil it all. And therefore, we have every reason to eagerly anticipate that inheritance He promised. And if we know that's coming, no more sin, no more decay, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more cause for sin, no more disappointment, no more of any of it. If we know that's coming, not only can we endure the brokenness of this world, we will be compelled to worship God. Compelled. Today we have disappointments, we have sorrows, we have brokenness. Not then. And knowing that that's coming, knowing that that all of these struggles will soon be cast off, how can we not worship and celebrate and praise and honor the God who has made it so? And that brings us to verse 5, because it's all well and good that we celebrate what God has promised us, but how can we be sure that we will stick around to receive it? 
not a big fan of reality shows. But there is one that I kind of enjoy called Alone. The idea is they drop off these contestants in remote, fairly rigorous areas. And the last one remaining, they have just a few survival tools. They're all alone, right? They have to film themselves. And they have a sat phone. They can call at any time and say, I'm done. I quit. Come get me. And they can get all the food they want, all the clothes they want. They can be warm for once, right? When they start, they're all confident. I'm going to win. I'm going to make it. But pretty soon they start missing their family. They start getting tired of always being hungry and always being cold and always being wet and wondering what's lurking outside their shelter at night. And pretty soon they start dropping like flies because they're not nearly as tough or as strong or as convicted as they thought they were. If it was up to us to earn that inheritance, we'd be the same way. Oh, I can't wait until that time. But then then the world wears on us. It gets hard to stand on our own. It gets hard to put up with with their slander and their mockery. It gets hard to be the one standing alone. It gets hard. And we just want to give in and fit in and have a moment's peace. If it was up to us, not one of us would get that inheritance. But it's not up to us. The last point we see here in verse 5 is the powerful provision that we trust. According to verse 5, we are a people by God's power, by God's power being guarded. Being preserved from harm. The word there is a present participle. That means that it defines the one about whom it speaks and it's ongoing, it's persistent. That means that not only is our inheritance being kept for us, but we are being kept for our inheritance. And that promise is throughout Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 54, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Or think about about John 10, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And now here Peter tells us what God promised. We can be confident He will fulfill. No one will snatch us from His hand. Not one of us whom whom He has chosen will fail to attain to all of it. No weapon formed against us is able to prosper at dragging us away from the Lord. Now that's wonderful, but also a bit confusing. Because it says here that God guards us, He protects us. But then in the rest of this letter, we read about how unbelievers lie about God's people and falsely call them evildoers. And how masters treat their servants harshly, harming them unjustly. And how some of us will suffer even for doing what is right. And so that tells us that whatever it means that Peter says we're being guarded, it doesn't mean life is always going to be easy. It doesn't mean that we won't have times of struggle and suffering. So what does it mean? Folks, it means that neither Satan nor the world can win. We cannot be snatched away from the hand of our Father. Our faith cannot be destroyed by the wiles of the evil one. Our flesh may falter, but our souls will be kept eternally by the power of God. Because God guards us, we shall receive the full inheritance that He has promised. Every one of us. 
And we shall know in the end the joy of standing in perfect peace with God. Look at the way that God guards us. We are guarded by God's power. In Jude, Jude celebrates Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Think about that. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. That's who our God is. As persistent as is our sinfulness, as foolish as our hearts often are, He is able to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. The one who guards us is the one who made the world. The one who upholds every molecule every minute. The one who ordains all that comes to pass and did so before anything came to pass. This is the one whose power guards us, ensuring that no one steals us away, guaranteeing that we shall complete the course that He has begun in us, and He exercises that power in us by faith. By faith we were joined to Christ and delivered from our sin. By the constant exercise of faith we walk that narrow path of, of salvation. It's a faith that He gives, that He sustains, that He upholds, but always it is by faith. Always it is as we stare at the Lord and follow after Him. And thus we are brought by His power, staring at Christ, following our shepherd, we are brought to that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are saved who trust in Christ, and yet the fullness of our salvation shall not be revealed until Christ returns. Until then, as long as we remain in this world, we will struggle against temptation. We will let ourselves down. We will know the struggle of having others let us down. But despite the worst this world can throw at us, despite the most foolish things that we can do, we are guarded, our salvation complete in Christ, our hearts increasingly made sure that no one can snatch us away from our beloved shepherd. Brothers and sisters, surely that knowledge must drive us to worship the Lord. I mean, how can we not? The longer I walk with Christ, the longer you walk with Christ, the, longer, the more confident we will be that we're weak, that we're unable, that we cannot stand firm, but also the more we will be confident He is able. He's able to give us exactly what we need, exactly at the moment we need it. He's able to put precisely the people in our lives that we need to draw us through. He's able to give us the knowledge and the understanding and the preparation we need for the task that stands ahead of us exactly when we need it. How can we not worship Him? How can we not give Him glory? How can we not proclaim to all the world, to our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, how can we not tell them, this is where my hope is found, this is where my strength is found, and He deserves everything. He deserves all your praise, all your glory, all your time, all your money, all your everything. We won't if we think any of it depends on us. But if we have a true understanding of who we are and of how powerful Satan is, but also of how gracious and loving and glorious our God is, then we will stand firm in Him, confident in Him, and we will give Him the glory that He deserves. Brothers and sisters, this is our greatest task, our greatest calling. 
God may well have equipped you to be a mother or a father, a builder or a planner, a teacher or a student. There are any number of tasks that God may have called and equipped and ordained you for at various points in your life, but every one of you at every moment is called to this above all else, recognizing who you are in the Lord, perceiving the glorious inheritance that He has accomplished for you, that He is preserving you for. We are called to worship Him, and as we do, we are exactly where He wants us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have given us promises and assurances that are greater than anything this world can even begin to offer. And you have given us the assurance that Christ has earned it and worked it all. Father, we thank you. Enable each one of us to perceive the goodness and the glory of what you have done and to devote ourselves earnestly to loving you, worshiping you, confessing you before the world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let's confess together in song the amazing grace of the Lord our God who has called and saved us. Number 380, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 